Hello, fellow griever. You have found the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I am Alyssa, your host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. Since launching this podcast in late 2020, I have followed my heart and expanded the leftover pieces to include books and an online community where I host Zoom support groups every week. It is there in this community that I lead other parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me, ways to connect with me, and links to everything that I'm doing in the community on my website, theleftoverpieces.com. Know that I'm always open to suggestions and feedback. And if you know someone that I should connect with to be on the podcast, please let me know that as well. So now, I invite you to join me for real conversations, handed talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of our loved ones by suicide. I talk to other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer shorter solo episodes where I go down the rabbit hole to discuss things that have been on my mind or possibly parts of my journey that I feel would be beneficial to share. Every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me, and together, let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Welcome, fellow grievers. Today, you have reached Season 4, Episode 9 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I'm Melissa, your host. And today, I'm sharing a conversation that I had not so long ago with the wonderful Marianne Govea of Eric's House. Marianne's episode was originally scheduled to be out almost a month before it's actually coming out. But as you may or may not know, my life kind of turned a little bit sideways for a while after Hurricane Ian hit down here in Florida. So it's my pleasure to finally be back doing the release of regular podcast episodes and all things that I do here in the leftover piece of space. And I'm especially honored to be bringing this conversation to you to share a little bit with you about Marianne. Prior to doing this work with Eric's house, after losing her son to suicide six and a half years ago, she had spent 35 years as an aerospace and defense executive. She was the president and vice president, along with various other capacities, with a concentration on international business development and program management. She even owned and operated her own international aerospace company for more than 10 years. However, Marianne left corporate America to pursue a business coaching certification through the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching and is a professional certified coach with the International Coaching Federation. After the loss of her youngest son, Eric, Marianne chose to turn her tragedy into good for others. She founded Eric's House in 2017 to help those left behind sort out through devastating losses in order to integrate their grief so that they may find joy and happiness again. Eric's house helps people rise, survive, and even thrive in the face of devastation. Outside of her corporate life, she experienced a number of life transitions encompassing career, business, loss of a sibling, loss of a child, loss of parents, divorce, 
having a Down syndrome son and a Down syndrome sister. My conversation with Mary Ann today encompasses everything from how we work through these grief bursts as they occur, how healing can begin after shock, numbness, and isolation, and then continue on from there. We discuss what is Catholic fear? Is it a real thing and can you move past it? We also talk about grief inside of a marriage and so much more. And you'll want to stay tuned till the very end when Mary Ann offers great parting advice as she talks about opening to the presence of your pain. And of course, you'll find out more about Eric's house and specifically what its vision is and where possibly you can find resources that they offer as well. So without any further ado, I'm going to dive on into this conversation and welcome Mary Ann. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Marianne. I'm so very honored to have you on today and discuss your loss and Eric's house. Welcome. Well, thank you, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. And I wanted to thank you for all the work that you're doing in this space. It's badly needed. It is. And I, as I told you before, I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing as well. There's always a need. So I will start with you sharing your lost story, whatever that means to you and whatever you're comfortable with. Sure. Well, I have three boys and Eric was my youngest. And it's a story that we hear all too often, Melissa. Eric had a injury in high school and it resulted in a wrist that was really badly hurt. And he went through seven surgeries, and as a result, he lost function of his right hand, and he had chronic pain. And so they prescribed OxyContin. And after he died, I I learned that he was prescribed over 500 OxyContin pills, and they were distributed to him through a pill mill on the west side of Phoenix. And so he became addicted, obviously, and he transitioned to heroin. He hated being an addict. He didn't look like an addict or act like an addict. He just looked normal because he had been taking oxys for so long. And one day he came to me and said, Mom, I'm really struggling. I have a problem with heroin. And so we put him in rehab. He went willingly. And he was in there for about four months. He came out. He was sober for a very long time. And on Christmas Eve, he had a relapse. And six weeks later, he chose to end his life. And I found him. I had a key to his apartment. We had spoken the night before. Everything sounded okay. I had no idea this was coming. And we were going to go for his favorite breakfast. He loved pancakes, by the way. And we were going to go for pancakes. And he didn't answer his phone or his text. And fortunately, I had a key. And so I went over and, of course, I found him. And at that moment in time, I was completely paralyzed. It was like I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I immediately went into a state of shock and I called 911 and they make it a crime scene. And so I left and they put me in this fire engine with a couple of support people. And um, I stayed there for a few hours until they took Eric away. I was still in a state of shock and I couldn't believe this was happening. I actually followed him in the funeral van all the way to the morgue just to make sure that he got there safely because you're just so numb you can't even believe what's happening to you in that moment and so from there I I fortunately had an excellent counselor who was not only a grief counselor but she specialized in suicide grief 
And she's very prominent in the Phoenix area and very knowledgeable. It took me a while to get in to see her. But once I did, I could start to see that there was a lot of work to be done. And then, of course, I went through EMDR. I had 12 sessions of EMDR, which really was very helpful for me. But in terms of other support, there was really very little out there that I felt comfortable with. I did start to attend an open support group, and I decided that that wasn't the right approach for me. And so I just started to investigate different ways that I could heal, finding very few resources out there. And I spent, I'd say, probably four weeks just on the floor in my closet, curled up in a ball, keening and wailing, not sure that I wanted to survive this. And uh, eventually I picked myself up. And as they say, one step at a time, I started to take baby steps. One day I was talking with my husband and I just said, we have to do something to help other people that go through this kind of nation. And so we formed a nonprofit to help other people with this journey. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your story because I know you understand this. It never gets easier. And I never take for granted hearing somebody else's lost story because this is just something that there's no way to equip ourselves for going through this and it's brave and it's vulnerable to share, but I also know it's healing to share. So I I know you're aware of that as well because of all the work that you guys do. So thank you for sharing your story. And you're welcome. So to hear you talk about the beginning, if we can go back and by the beginning, I know that's a rough, the first few weeks and months afterwards when you were so actively in shock. And like you said, your soul was keening and wailing for in in grief. And when you were going through that, I know you have a family and a husband. Talk a little bit about how that first few months to year looked like for your family and how you got to a place to be able to say, let's do something for somebody else and what that transition kind of looked like. Okay. Let me start with the first stop on my journey. I was raised Catholic. And of course, in Catholicism, we're taught that if someone dies by suicide, they automatically go to hell. So that was my very first fear. And I encountered some people in the church that were very helpful in helping me understand that wasn't the case. And so once I could embrace that and know that Eric was okay, I was able to continue. For me, if I had to live thinking Eric was struggling in hell or purgatory, whatever that means, it would have been a much different outcome, I think. So once I understood that, I was able to begin to move forward towards healing. The the first month, I had a lot of family around me. We have a big family. A lot of family. They were very, very helpful. I stopped eating and lost a lot of weight. And of course, I couldn't sleep because as your mind, you just can't get your mind to calm down. I had no solution for that, right? I really didn't want to take narcotics because it just didn't feel like the right thing to do for me. But I really had no solution for, for calming my mind down. After everybody left, there I was grateful for that feeling of numbness as you stay numb for, I don't know, in my case, four months. And I was grateful for that because I could just be a zombie, right? I could just be a zombie. I didn't put any expectations on myself. I am from the aerospace industry, Melissa, and I had to finish up some contracts that I was working on. Surprisingly, I made it through, but that work became meaningless to me. And so I had made that decision at that point, never to go back to the airplane world. But because I wasn't eating, I really wasn't able to heal very well. 
So I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I'm like, okay, what's going to happen next? Do I even really want to be here on this planet without my son? Um, As time went on and as the numbness began to wear off, then I began to see I have to do something. I have to pick myself up. I had two other children of a Down syndrome child. Obviously, he need, needed care. And my oldest son was really struggling quite a bit with the loss of his brother. And so I started to research things that might be helpful. I didn't find much out there. I know that this type of trauma affects you in every single element of your life, emotionally, physically, spiritually, cognitively, and socially. I isolated myself was a story we hear often as well. Isolation for me was very healing because it was all I could handle at the time. I couldn't handle interfacing with anybody. And I knew that my life was changed forever. I often talk about when our children are born, they change our lives forever. And when they die, they change our lives forever. And we never go back to who we used to be. We're able to define or remake a life for us where we integrate that type of trauma into our life, hopefully in a healthy way. And so I began to pursue different forms of healing, energy work, of course, mediumship was a big part of my journey in the beginning. And spiritually, I had to figure out what I believe spiritually in terms of some sort of belief structure or religious structure, but also about the after. What is this thing now, the afterlife? For me, Melissa, I've had multiple losses in my life. But losing a child is different because they're part of our DNA. And I had to come to understand that while we lose the physicality, their body is no not with us physically anymore. We learn to live with them in spirit. Right. And I knew that Eric was around me. But I just didn't understand it and I didn't know how. So as I began to embark on understanding how to be in a relationship with Eric in a different way than physically, I started to find hope. Our family struggled for a while. My husband and I have been married 24 years. He really raised Eric. He Eric was seven when we got married, I recognize without stereotyping that people grieve differently and men oftentimes do grieve differently than women. I wanted my husband to grieve like I was grieving. I didn't know and I didn't accept the fact that he was just going on about his life And I resisted the fact that he wanted to fix me. He's a lovely man, very supportive. But he wanted me to feel better. He wanted to fix me. And I think he even wanted me to return to the old Marianne. And I was ready to divorce him. We talk about this often, so I don't mind sharing it. I was ready to divorce him. And I think he was ready to divorce me. And one day I said, do you even miss Eric? And that was a wake-up call. So after a year, he began to examine how he was grieving as a man. And he finally came to understand that we're going to grieve differently and that this was something he couldn't fix. And, of course, we know that. We don't like to pathologize grief because grief is such a natural, normal human emotion. It's the other side of the coin of love. Love on one side, grief on the other. And it can't be fixed. We just learn to live with it and integrate it in healthy ways. We have a very strong marriage now, Melissa. And uh, he's actually in the bereavement space with us. 
and he runs a very successful men's group. So he's cracked the code. Yeah. Yeah. But it took a while and it happened differently, which is really than the way it happened with you, which is really important to outline for people that, and that happens with all grievers. Nobody processes things exactly the same. So it's, but you're right. We do want people to do things our way in the beginning. <laughs> We're like, How come you're not, what you're doing isn't what I'm doing or vice versa. And yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. You said several, I mean, you said a lot there that it made me think, and there's so much about the way you look at this and have processed your grief. I hear you saying a lot of the things that I say. I talk a lot about survival, hope, and healing. And because to me, it <clears throat> there's a misconception that there's set stages of grief. There's not. Grief is not linear. And so I, for myself, being six years in, and now you're at six and a half as well, I have been able to, it was probably around year four or five before I was able to really define what I call phases. We kind of go through because we do, we're growing to live alongside of this. We're trying to learn our new, I tell people at some point you have to come to accept. I did anyway, I had to come to accept that I was never going to be the same. That person you talked about that used to be and is, I think it was on a more subconscious level that I initially believed I would eventually get back to my old self because like you, I've had other loss mm-hmm. and some of it's somewhat significant. So it wasn't like it was all secondary. It was all significant loss, but I came to find out that didn't prepare me in any way for the loss of my child. And it doesn't belong in the same wheelhouse as I tell people. And so then when I finally got to the place to realize that I'm not getting back to my old self because my old self died when Alex did. And that doesn't say that eventually we don't make our way back to certain, I often say we bridge our way back to some of those pieces, the further into this healing journey that we get, I am starting to see, but there's to hear you say, even that your life in aerospace no longer meant anything to you. That was exactly what I had happened to me. We, after about a year and a half, sold our home and businesses and bought a big motorhome and traveled. And quite honestly, it seemed like it was very calculated and intentional. I look back at it now and go, I really just wanted to strip my life down to nothing because I had no idea what I was going to do now. And it seemed noble to say, well, let's do this now because we're not going to live forever. And I don't know what to do with myself anyway. But when we did that, we're not retirement age. So the intention was to work remotely and build something that meant something to me. So I defaulted to, I'm a retired executive chef. And I thought I'm going to write a cookbook. I've always wanted to write a cookbook. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I blogged and was teaching people to cook in their small kitchens. And I feel like I was, I felt like this is what I'm going to do. This is going to somehow matter to me. And when I was a year into that, so just about two and a half years or so after losing Alex, I literally looked at my husband one day, Marianne, and said, I don't want to do this because I don't care about it. I just don't. And I had already started trying to find places for my own healing, but I was also starting to dip my toe in that being what I cared about, like helping other grievers. And was kind of doing that at the same time. And that was where all my energy and heart was going. I have to do something that means something to me. And without blinking, he said, I want you to do whatever your heart tells you you need to do. And he's always supported anything. So at that point, it became about the leftover pieces. And that's where it's been since. It's been an evolution. And it took me a year from the the time that I said, I'm going to start a podcast, actually getting it done because I wasn't taking care of myself either, Marianne. And in the process of that year, I had a stroke and different things that happened that set things back. And that was a wake up call for me to say, not only is it, do I want to help other people, but I've got to stop. I got to look inward for a little while and take care of myself because how am I going to teach other people to do this if I don't do it myself? And that's, that was when I really started, like you said, I found hope and then I had to walk towards healing and, and get through that piece before I was ever able to say, now do I, how do I teach other people to do this? Because Mm -hmm. I feel like it was so much more messy than it needed to be had I been able to find the resources, had I been able to find 
Eric's house or the leftover pieces or things that just, I started the podcast because quite honestly, I couldn't find the podcast I needed. I found some very good grief podcasts, but they didn't speak to suicide loss Mm -hmm. and it's so unique. Addiction and suicide loss are so unique. So, and also hearing you talk about, you know, your Catholic fear. I know a lot of people will resonate with that. I don't come from a religious background, so I'm truly asking from an educational standpoint, but I know many people have said to me they struggle with that. Well, within the first week, I was, I think I mentioned just frozen, frozen in this idea that Eric went to hell. I believed Eric went to hell had to be such a horrible place to live in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And I was not a practicing Catholic, right? I was born and raised Catholic, cradle Catholic, right? A friend of mine led me to a man called Father Peter at a Franciscan retreat house that's here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I remember my husband and I walking in there just really hardly able to walk. And he walked in, Father Peter walked in shorts and a ragged old t-shirt. And he just looked at us and we told the story and he said, he's not in hell. That's just an old belief that has been handed down from generation to generation, but that God is a forgiving God. And Eric was living his hell here on earth and he's fine. He's just fine. And that's all we needed to hear. We spent an hour with him. That's all we needed to hear was, okay, he's not in hell. Yeah. Uh, That's some archaic thing that I don't have to cling to anymore. Yeah. Right. We could let that go. And from then on, we developed a really close relationship with Father Peter and then became involved at in the Franciscan at the church, which is the Franciscan Renewal Center, because they're a little bit more liberal, the traditional Roman Catholic philosophy. And so I decided that whatever we did moving forward with our nonprofit, it had to include something spiritual. So we offer spiritual direction because Some people have a crisis of faith. Some people have no faith. But this idea that now you have to be in a relationship with your child in spirit raises so many questions. If you believe in some God, many times people feel they're being punished for something they did. Or they become angry with God. And other people are like, child, where is he? And what is heaven? Right. And so because we know that death is really a spiritual experience. It's not a physical experience, even though the body dies, a spirit comes into that body at birth, or at conception, whatever you believe. But the body dies, the spirit goes somewhere. and. There are so many questions about where, like, yeah. where was Eric? Okay, so he didn't go to hell. So does that mean he went to heaven? Well, what is heaven? And what if he didn't go to heaven? What if he's just energy that gets absorbed back into other energy? So all of these questions come up. And for me, it became a process of self-discovery. It's like, I know moving forward, I have to explore questions about spirituality and about energy. It's not that I needed to have the answers. I realized that I had to bring that reflection into my life as part of my own self-discovery and exploration of what I believe. And so in Eric's house, we do a lot of that kind of work when people need it. If they do want to explore whatever they want to explore. All the questions. Yeah. All of those questions. And we even have groups about it as well. I do know, Melissa, as you, you do as well, that it's not a flip a switch. Nothing in this loss experience is flip a switch and you're going to 
you're going to be better. And we have people come in and say, can you just fix me up? Right. Well, no, because you have to feel this in order to heal it. And the approach towards healing is slow and you have to approach it with courage and bravery and vulnerability and openness because we're splayed open. We're splayed open for everybody to see these deep wounds. And so picking those pieces, I love the name of your podcast, by the way. I like to use the analogy of a broken vase, which you've heard before. And when you put that vase back together again, some pieces don't fit, right? And some pieces are left over, which is why I love the name of your podcast. Sometimes we have to discard pieces of our lives. Sometimes the things that worked for us before don't work for us anymore. This is so so true. Yeah. So we discover new parts of ourselves. I like that you talk about the fact that it's not just a switch that can be flipped because in a lot of the community groups that I do, we talk about that kind of thing a lot because one of the things early grievers look to people that have been grieving a little longer for is how did, because we appear to be functioning better than, and we are, than we were in the first few months for sure. And so they're looking for, like you said this, what did you do to fix yourself? And when I have to look at people and say what you said, which is, this isn't going to be easy. It isn't going to be quick. And oh, by the way, you're not going to get fixed. You're going to learn to live with this and it is hard and it's going to hurt. And it is going to challenge you on levels that you have never wanted to be challenged on. But that's the reality. The reality is it's always going to feel this bad because they want you to say in X number of time, you'll feel better or this won't be as big of a source of pain anymore. From my experience this far in, I can't honestly look at anybody and say that this feels any better. This, right. I carry it better. I'm stronger and more adept at knowing what to expect. I have a fairly full toolbox, but it is still work and it is still hard. It's still a conscious choice. And I don't win every single day at what I'm doing. There are days that I say, and I have actually said that's become something I say to my husband when I'm having a particularly hard day or moment, I'll say, I'm not winning right now. Right. Right. Now I'm not winning (laughs) because there are just times that this still brings you to your knees There's still times that even though I feel like my logo is the heart with the few holes in it, even though I feel like I've mostly tried to to mush this back and make something out of it, there's times I feel like I'm back sitting in the middle of all of those shattered pieces still. Now, again, I do have the ability to handle it differently than I did six years ago. I have a lot more hope and I know that joy can exist now. I, If you told me six years ago that I was going to ever find happiness again, something that resembled happiness or joy, I would say, I don't even know how that's possible. How am I going to be joyful on a planet where my son doesn't exist? Even though I have two other children like you, it's funny because the people that say things like, well, at least you have two other children. One, they really just don't they don't understand, but our kids are not interchangeable. This wouldn't be any different if it was my daughter or my other son. Um, They're not a package deal. They're mutually exclusive. I created each one of them and I would feel this same hole, no matter which one of them there had been. And it's our nature to want to lay down and not go on anymore, I think. And so to find the courage like you did and to look at your husband and say, let's do something to help others when was the, that was the idea for Eric's house and talk to me a little bit about the inception of Eric's house, what you saw and thought then versus now, and is it a physical place in today's world? So many places are, everything I do is just virtual Marianne. So I don't have a physical place. So talk to me about Eric's house from beginning to now. Okay. So Eric died in February of 2016 we received our nonprofit status in November of 2017. So it was pretty quick. 
But very much like your story, Melissa, when you said to your husband, you don't care about people and having them learn to cook. I was sitting next to my husband in our office and I said, his name is Greg. I said, Greg, we're going to start Eric's house. It's going to be a nonprofit that helps people get through this journey. And for us, we wanted, we focus on alcohol, drugs, and suicide because those lines cross each other. And so because I come from a business background, I had skills that I could apply right away to start getting things organized. And we start, I started, I went out and got a bunch of training in grief from Dr. Wolfelt, 150 hours of training in complicated grief. And I started working as an independent. And then in June of 2019, we leased a facility, which we don't have anymore, but we leased a facility in Paradise Valley, Arizona. And that's when we really began to operate as a team with staff and volunteers. Our mission is to provide safety, hope, and healing and new beginnings, right? New beginnings for people to sort through what they want to do next, the next chapter of their life. And so we created one-on-one grief companioning sessions where we work one-on-one with a grief specialist. And then we created a variety of groups We have a number of groups. We have suicide loss, substance loss, men's groups. We just started an LGBTQ and we're likely going to start a group for mothers of only children because their loss experience is also a little bit different. And then we also do Reiki. So we do in-person and distance Reiki, and that's very helpful. And then we do spiritual direction for all face, no face. We also uh, really encourage our clients to consider breath work because we think breath work is so very important to emotional and physical well-being because we're hunched over. The whole first year, maybe two years, we're all hunched over. And so we learn shallow breathing. And then that causes all these other issues. And so we encourage that. We offer some classes twice a month on that. We do journaling. We do some workshops and retreats. The thing is, it's all an experiment, right? It's all an experiment for especially early grievers to understand what those things are that are going to help them the most. And so those are the things we try to focus on is what's going to help them the most. Sometimes it's retelling the story over and over again. We know that in and of itself is very healing. Sometimes it's community. A lot of our groups, people stay in touch with each other for quite some time. I love the fact that you're a chef. We just did cooking for comfort with a group of our lost survivors. And it was really a spectacular event because Food is so important. We had a physical location, which we decided to let go because we're a nonprofit. We want to be good stewards of our donors' money. And we're located inside an office building now. It is a physical place. And so we can meet clients here and we can do events here. But what we have found is people, and we're all over the United States, right? We have clients all over the United States. And what we have found, Melissa, is that the first couple of times people would like to have that touch. Um, But then after that, especially early grievers, they prefer to stay in their pajamas. And so Zoom has been really effective for that. We think having a physical location is important. Um, We'd love to expand to other states. But for now, we're just located in in Phoenix. We have a group of counselors that we refer people to when we see the work that we do might not be adequate 
then we can refer people here locally in Arizona to a therapist or an EMDR specialist that that can also help them. So that's a little bit about Eric's house. We continue to evolve and study really what works best for people, no matter where they are. I mentioned new beginnings in our mission statement. So we're old enough now where people are wanting life coaching to help plot out what they're going to do next. As giving back is a big part of the healing process. And so we do some work with around living with meaning and purpose. We do some work where we help people understand not only the meaning that they attach to the loss of their loved one, but also what meaning means for them now in this remaking process. And then, of course, purpose. You mentioned earlier, Melissa, we change forever. And so what does that change look like? And so we work with people to do that as well. But mostly our people do the work, right? As it's hard work. And really, it just becomes, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but for the sake of understanding, it really becomes about finding the right place that will companion you because you're going to have to do the work. Somebody like, like you said, people may show up in front of you and say, fix me or give me the right book or let me tell me which course I'm supposed to take or fill in the blank. Tell me which Reiki session is going to solve. None of this is going to fix it. You're going to have to do the work. It's hard. You have to find the things that work for you and your, your own personal belief in body and mind and all the things, which is why there are all these different modalities and options and finding what works as part of it, which means sometimes we try things that don't work. or don't seem to benefit us. And that can be frustrating, but it doesn't mean there isn't something out there that will. And so it really becomes about being someone who's willing to companion the bereaved right? and acknowledge and see them for all the pain they're in, but also to give them the hope that they can do the hard work and that it will be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. To hear you saying that Eric's house is evolving makes complete sense to me that as an organization like this would grow and as you've had people that have been with you for a while now, how their needs are now going to be different. So you're going to evolve to meet those needs. But it also highlights the point that some of these clients, it's just such a, that's such a bad word. Some of the people, what do you call them? We call them members. Yes. Members of of the Eric's house community. Right. So as people that are a part of your community have been with you pointing out the need for other things. And that highlights to me the fact that they haven't graduated Eric's house. They're not like fixed now. They just have, they're evolving into their new self. I call it rebuilding, right? We're rebuilding us. And now they have different needs. And sometimes those needs also then involve them being able to give back themselves and different things like that. So to see your community evolving to me makes complete sense. And sometimes early grievers need to hear that there is, there isn't a fix, but you're going to be able to continue to grow in your grief and that there is that promise of growth and a new life that while we still would trade it for the old one. Right. Absolutely. Not an option. It's not an option. So we have to figure out how to make this one be the best that it can be under the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And everything in your life changes, right? Your social circles change. In my case, after 35 years in aerospace, I really have no contact with anybody, right? I've had to evolve a whole new group of people, which to be perfectly honest is so much more rewarding Yeah, because I choose to spend time with these people. Right. Yeah. So, so much changes. One of the things I did want to mention that we find is the hardest thing. And you touched on it a little bit, Melissa, is this idea just wanting to move forward when sometimes we feel like we're moving backwards. 
And we always say that you have to be open, which is hard for people to digest. Mm -hmm. You have to be open and present with your pain. If you can't be present with it, you can't process it and you can't heal. And for many people, that's just so hard to understand because, well, I'm having a good day today. Why do I want to go back and feel all those terrible feelings again? And um, you have to be able to process them through so that when you have your natural, normal emotions, you can accept them and not go into another tailspin. Yeah. For me, I still, I look at Eric's picture sometimes and I'm like, Eric, what happened? So I still have a little bit of anger. It's nothing that overwhelms me. Of course, I have sadness and sorrow. I don't go into deep, deep despair very often anymore. Most of the time I've transitioned from thinking about Eric and how he died and that he did die to more about how he lived and who he was. Yep. And and I'm six and a half years out. But I'm very hopeful. I'm very happy and grateful that I had Eric in my life. And so those kinds of small discoveries about your relationship with Eric, your loss experience, really become part of that rebuilding, as you say. Where you can actually say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm able to survive this. I feel safe. And I'm able to ex- to laugh. Yeah. And experience happiness again. And we're able to laugh without feeling guilty. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yeah. You're exactly right. And, and that's not something we're afforded in the beginning. The first time that you laugh or that you're at something that you feel like you're enjoying yourself, the guilt that can come afterwards or even during, I mean, many of us had that moment that we smiled the first time, meaning really smiled or really felt that kind of joy emotion, even if it might've only been fleeting in the beginning, that a lot of times we just pull that right back in with, I can't possibly, who am I to, how could I possibly have had joy in that moment? My son's gone. And we get to a place that we, yeah, I, one of the promises that I make my support group moms is that I tell them, and I didn't, it's not, it's an, it's a quote that I don't even know who said it, but I often refer to them needing to have a goal of no longer wanting to live in the shadow of their child's death, but wanting to live in the sunshine of their life. Like and many that. of them have claimed they cling to that idea that's possible. Many of them aren't there yet. I'm there. You're there. I do absolutely spend way more time thinking about Alex's life than I, a completely unrelated story that doesn't, won't, I won't embellish on for this podcast, but we still have a court case that's surrounding Alex's death. So once in a while, I'm still pulled back into it for that. If that didn't exist, I would say I probably wouldn't spend much time thinking about his actual death anymore because I do spend so much time thinking about the 21 years I had him. And so much more of what pops into my head now are all of the good memories, all of the, oh, when he was little, he did this or all the different things that for the longest time, you just have this cloud that can't stop thinking about the moment they died. And so it's a really welcome transition when you can start to transition into the light of their life and walk outside of that shadow of their death, because man, there's so much more than that one choice they made in that one moment. Right. And even if I knew it was going to end this way, I always say without blinking, I would do it all over again. Mm -hmm. He was such an amazing person and to feel and to be so lucky as to have been his mom. I remember feeling that when he was little, I'm like, he had a big heart. It was just like this wonderful person. And I would say that even when he was little is I'm just really lucky to be his mom. And so to be able to spend time on that now and not the darkness is so, so much more rewarding and fulfilling as a mom, because we don't quit being their mom. I don't have two kids. I still have three children. One of them's just not alive anymore. So Right. And and when you talked about that spiritual 
thing and how you're right. We all have all the, everybody has different questions and that's part of why exploring that is so important. But I remember standing with Alex's body after he was gone and we had a very private viewing. He was cremated for the funeral, but we did have a very private family viewing so everybody could spend time if they wanted to. And I remember as I stood there and had my hand on my son, I remember saying definitively, and I could physically feel him, mm-hmm. but I remember saying, I know you're not here in your body. Like I had my hand on him and, but I said, I know you're here with me because I can feel you. Mm-hmm. And that was my, my, I mean, that was how immediate the transition happened for me of knowing that his energy was still there. Because I felt it, even though I knew that it was almost pointless to be talking to his body. But as moms, as humans, we still have to detach from that somehow, right? They, right. We still want them here in the physical. We want their spirit back inside that body because that's what's comfortable for us. Right. And so this answering of all the questions and going through all the processes, I always encourage because it's part of that mind, body, spirit. It's part of the spirit piece where we have to get right with how we're going to interact with our child now that they're in the spiritual energetic plane. Yeah. It's a really important piece of the puzzle, but I did want to mention one thing that I've learned for myself. And I actually learned this from another mom that Eric is so much more present in his death than in his life right than alive because um having his physical presence here is it comes over for sunday dinner we go for breakfast but then they drive away and he goes on with his own life like my other son we're very close but he works and he has his own life so we don't see each other all the time but in in death eric's always present with me Always. Yeah. Much more so than when he was alive because he was going to school and working and all these other things. He's so much more present and I feel him around me all the time. And what a blessing it is to be able to build that kind of relationship with him. Yeah. And to just know that, okay, I don't know how it happens but I know he's here. Right. Yeah. And I find great comfort in that. Yeah, Yeah. I do too. I do too. And you're exactly right. I've told people before that while Alex and I were very close when he was alive, I feel closer to him now than I did then. And again, I would still take him back in the physical form if I could, but he also has given me a lot of gifts that I wouldn't have had had he lived, I think. So as much as we have to get to that place of being able to no longer say, but I just wish he was here. He's not, and he's not going to be. And so to embrace the gifts, to embrace, you talked about how your life is so much more full and the people that I have found that the people that are in my life now so many of them are the relationships are so much more pure and deep than the relationships I had before trauma does that to us. And especially when you connect with others through trauma and so many of these people are so good and they're so kind. And of course, trauma can do that to us as well. And so when people spend a lot of time, because all of us did, even if it was just for a brief time thinking, ruminating on what we've lost, the relationships that we've lost, That's something that can turn a corner absolutely to where you no longer, I don't even look at most of my lost relationships anymore. I look at the plethora of relationships I've gained and the substance of those relationships and the fulfillment that they bring me now. My life is so much more full. And that sounds like something that shouldn't exist in the wake of the loss of my son. But part of that fullness comes from him as well. Yeah. It's a strange duality is what I like to say, to be able to say my life is so 
much different than I ever expected it was going to be. Does that mean that I carry the greatest sorrow that I could ever imagine? It does, but it lives mm-hmm. alongside of some of the, it lives alongside of the best version of me that's ever existed. It lives alongside of some of the greatest happiness and fulfilling things that I'm doing that I could have never imagined either. So it's really hard right. to put those two right. and balance them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because look at the excellent work that you're doing. You're reaching so many people, Melissa. And you're so willing to share your story and bring healing to others. And that is a blessing, not only for you, but for the people that you touch. Well, I started off just saying, if I can just help one person, I'll be fine. The one person I really needed to help in the beginning was me. And that doesn't completely change. I mean, on some level, this is still a form of selfish therapy. There's a part of it in there for us as well to help us heal. But I know that you understand when I say it's not coming from a religious standpoint, but it just feels like a calling of my heart. I don't have a choice but to work with other grievers. It just feels like where I'm supposed to be. That's right. That's right. That is how I feel. And believe it or not, my father was a deacon and he did bereavement work. And so I would have never thought (laughs) I kind of grew up with it. And then we've had so much loss in our family that it's like when Eric died, it's like a big wake up call. It's like I this is the work I'm supposed to be doing. And now I look back on all those years in aerospace, and while I appreciated and developed really a true love for airplanes, I should have been doing this work all along. And I'm just, while I would do anything to have Eric back, I know that there is a bigger plan. And part of that plan is for me to do this work and to create an organization to continue it, right? So that... So that it's sustainable. Yep, I agree. I'm so grateful that we had this conversation and so thankful for everything that you've shared. And I'd like you to, as we wrap things up, share where people can find you. I mean, I know it's super easy, but I want people to be able to hear it. And I will, of course, not only provide it in the show notes, but you are on my resource page as well on my website. But I want you to tell people how they can find Eric's house and then any other messages that you want to make sure that you share before we finish up here, Marianne? Sure. Well, our website is ericshouse.org. It's pretty easy to navigate if anybody would like to look at it. We have a lot of articles and resources there as well. And then we have, of course, Twitter and Instagram. That's ericshouse88. But You know, the final message that I really want people to understand is that we can't run from this. That grief is patient. Grief will wait for us. And just by allowing ourselves to honor our feelings of sadness and sorrow, we can grow and we can find hope. But it's also important to honor our feelings of happiness and joy as well, and not to forget that piece of the puzzle. And that that will lead to eventually a healthy integration of the trauma and loss into their lives. That's it. I agree. That's a great way to end. Thanks so much. I look forward to hopefully having further connection. And I'm so thankful that this finally worked out for us. I always believe that the timing is what it's supposed to be. So I agree. I'm, I'm so thankful and appreciate you a lot, Marianne. Okay. Well, thank you, Melissa. And thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll talk soon. Okay. okay bye-bye. bye-bye. Grievers. It is my hope that from today, You will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. I would love to connect with you. And the best way to do that is to start out on my website, where the first thing you'll find is a video recorded message from me. And then from there, you can find everything I offer. The online Zoom support groups, 
the books I've written, ways to connect for the podcast, and an entire resource library assembled to help all suicide loss grievers find the resources that they need to help them along their healing journey. Please go to theleftoverpieces.com. From there, I hope that we can connect and I hope that you too can discover that we truly are better together. If anything that you've heard in today's episode resonates with you, I would ask that you please subscribe to get notified every week of my new episodes. And then take a moment to rate and review me on Apple Podcasts so that more grievers like us can find this podcast and this community. It is from my own experience of finding myself sitting amid the leftover pieces of my own shattered heart that I can tell you that while it seems impossible in the early days, it is possible to put those pieces back together and be okay again. And every week, we'll be right here providing more comfort, hope, and community. So until next week, I'll sign off today with some words from one of my Alex's favorites, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon. Talk soon.